Okay, let's take our Bibles uh, this morning and turn to the letter to the Hebrews, and we will continue to look at in this great, great book. At least at this point, the preeminency of the Son, the Son of God, over angels. Now, the portrait of Jesus, of the Messiah, that the book of Hebrews assigns to him is that really of complete supremacy over angels, over others, over all created things. Again, by way of reminder, remember the author of Hebrews, whoever that may be, informs this his downcast, and you can sense in, in Hebrews that the audience he's writing to is somewhat a little bit tottering. Uh, they are dithering readers, and they are questioning some things. There are warning passages in Hebrews, actually four warning passages that we'll be looking at as we go along. But Overall, the final revelation that God has given to humanity is Christ, is the Son. He is vastly superior to all spiritual angelic beings. And that's the section we're looking at now. And the great temptation for these Jewish Christians, of course, was to simply acknowledge Jesus as a great angel that had awesome power, but not God. This was tempting, especially in the context of possible persecution or being cast out of their homes or out of the synagogues or off their jobs. Even loss of life could be the threat here. So the pressure that they were under to simply stress that Jesus was an archangel or some kind of angel, but not the Son of God, was a very real thing in this book. So it was really tempting because it wouldn't be an outright denial of Jesus. They would still say, yes, we believe in Jesus. But it would just simply change the emphasis on who Jesus is. Now, that's not new today, is it? In fact, some major religious systems take Jesus and make the same error. Take, for example, Jehovah Witnesses say, Jesus is not God. Before he lived on earth, he was Michael the Archangel. Mormonism says Jesus is a separate God from the Father. He was created a spirit child by the Father and Mother in heaven and is the elder brother of all men and spirit beings, Mormonism. Hinduism says Jesus is a teacher or a guru. He is a son, a son of God, as others are. His death did not atone for sins, and did not and he did not rise from the dead buddhism 
Jesus is just simply not a part of their system. In fact, but in the West, they do consider Jesus to be an enlightened man. Judaism does not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, or that he rose from the dead. Islam says that Jesus is one of 124,000 prophets sent by God to various cultures. Jesus was born a virgin, but is not the Son of God. That he is sinless, but not divine or God himself. I can go on in the list. And the thing about it is that these religious systems and others, by their teaching, either ignore Jesus or demote him and strip him of his real identity as being the inheritor of the title Son of God, meaning that he is God. This is what the book of Hebrews is going to prevent all believers of all times not to go. Don't go there. Don't even entertain it. Because if you get Jesus wrong, you get it all wrong, and the end result is the damnation of your soul. That is the end result. So we must go back to Scripture to find out who is Jesus. And how does the Bible portray him to us so we don't make that same mistake? So we don't drift away from the truth. Now, sonship is a dominant motif in Hebrews, and it is used really to establish the superiority of Jesus in contrast to the several rival possibilities in the mind of the readers. In verse number 4, if you look in chapter 1, having become, as it says, much Better, this very word better, means uh, describes someone who is more prominent or higher in rank above others by virtue of a qualitative difference. So far, Scripture has established that angels are common spiritual beings. They do have dignity. They do have rank in creation. But only Jesus is uniquely begotten of the Father. The Son is equal to the Father in every respect. And in no way is He a created being. So we can never put Jesus Christ on the par of angels. They don't even come close. So the Son of God is supreme over the angels... As one who, like them, this is how he's like them, they have spoken the message of God, but he has spoken finally. This is God's final revelation to us, Jesus Christ. Everything about his ministry is supreme over all the previous shadowy counterparts we find in the rest of Scripture the types and the pictures and the sacrifices and the messages and the shadows given in all the Word of God all point to Jesus. He becomes the clarifying element of all revelation and all theology. So, so far, we looked at the Son is preeminent over angels 
by virtue of his position. And secondly, the son is preeminent over angels by virtue of his authority. And this is where I kind of left off last time. The preeminency of the son is shown by comparing the height to which angels attain with the height to which belongs only to the son. So in your Bibles, look at verse number 7, and this is where I'm going to start, looking at the height to which angels attain. Verse 7 says this, and here's the first thing really, angels are God's ministrants. New word. And no more. In other words, they're his ministers. It's an old English word, ministrants, I kind of liked it. But look at the passage of Scripture. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? Now, the Septuagint, remember, I, I've been saying that the writer of Hebrews is quoting directly from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so this is what it says in the Septuagint, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. There's a difference there. Our word, and the word in many of the other major translations uses messenger, but messenger and angel really is the same thing. An angel is a messenger. An angel is a sent one from God with authority. Sent with authority from God. They do God's bidding. And so from this passage of Scripture, it shows that angels are inferior to the Son of God. And in verse 7, we see first that they're created they're creatures, this is by way of review, they're created to be swift and have a level of power and ability unraveled by human beings, yet all their powers are communicated powers. It doesn't come from them, it comes from someone else, the one who created them, which we know from the word of God is Jesus Christ himself. A second thing in verse number 7, it says that they're his messengers. He has... They're his servants. He has a particular ownership to angels. And angels, however exalted they are in Scripture, and they are, are only instruments of divine agency. They are messengers as swift as the wind and officials who can be destructive as a consuming fire. We see this all over Scripture, that when God wants something done, whether it be a good message or whether it be a tough situation, what does he do? He sends an angel. Matter of fact, just by way of example, go back to Exodus chapter 12 and verse number 23, but specifically verse number 29, and just look at how God commissions an, an angel to take care of his bidding on killing Yes, all the firstborn of Egypt. Remember, God brought the plagues on Egypt because all the plagues identified some god they were worshiping. They were a polytheistic culture. They had many gods. And so each one of those curses that came upon Egypt was an attack against their gods that they worshiped. Meaning this, that God is more powerful. The God of Moses, the God of creation, the God of the people of Israel is more powerful than any of your gods, and that's why you have all those curses. It knocks out every one of their gods. And so that last one, where 
It says in Exodus chapter 12, verse 23, For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the doorpost, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow, look what it says, the destroyer to come into your house and smite you. Now, the angel is referred to in this passage of Scripture as the destroyer, but this destroying angel who kills all the firstborn of Egypt and not touching any of the people of Israel or even their animals. Remember, the animals were included in this firstborn curse too, right? Look what it says in verse 29. Now it came about at midnight the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. So this destroying angel was a minister of God. He was the commanding general saying, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go down there and you're going to kill all the firstborn of Egypt. And that, that's a tough task. See, his angels are ministers of fire, of wrath, of destruction. I can go one example after another, but I want you to turn to the New Testament for another example in Acts chapter 12, verse 23. And this, remember when I was preaching through that, this has to do with King Herod. Remember, King Herod on this particular day kind of exalted himself above all gods. On this particular uh, event, and look what it says in Acts chapter 12, verse 23. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. So God not only uses his angels to give good announcements like the birth of Christ and to fight against spiritual wickedness behind the scenes like in Daniel, but he sends them to do tasks like this. But it's, they don't make a decision on their own. God sends them. He is their, he, he, they are his messengers. They are the ones who do his bidding, whether it be that of, and they do it swiftly. There's no argument. There's no debating. There's no meetings. There's no committees. They just do it. They are completely obedient and so angels here are creatures they are servants and then in verse number eight back to hebrews chapter one it says that they are of course they are servants or they are subjects in his kingdom in other words they serve before the throne while christ sits on the throne that's quite different all right and so that is the height to which angels rise. Are they ministers? They are creatures. They are servants and they are subjects in God's kingdom. That's it. But they do have dignity. They are to be respected and they are to be uh, taken seriously. But notice secondly in verse number 8 that the height to which belongs only to the Son in verse 8, he, the Son, is God, the everlasting King, and this is what it says, but of the Son, he says, your throne of God, Hebrews 1.8, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Again, he's, he's uh, 
I want you to look closely at this passage because the one speaking is God, the Father, who says directly about the Son. And if referencing actually Psalm chapter 45 and verse number 6, don't turn there, but it says this, Your throne, O God. Your throne of God is forever and ever. This passage is speaking about the Son. So God the Father saying about God the Son, it says, your throne is forever and ever. This shows that the Son of God is God in the fullest sense of the world. Word, you can't get away from it. You can't mess the language up on this one. This is one of those direct phrases in Scripture where... The Son of God is, is looked at by the Father in the fullest sense of the world word as God who reigns. Now the second part in verse number 8 is very interesting because it says here, and the righteousness, the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. So Hebrews is emphasizing his position, his office, the, the function of his eternal office as the divine Son. He occupies his throne for the word is eons of eons. It's, it's from all ages, from all times, from the beginning of when time started. Remember, God was before time. Time always becomes a problem when looking at Scripture sometimes. Because if Christ was crucified before the foundation of the world, world, what does that mean? That means in God's mind, in God's plan, before time, the plan was done. This is not a second This is not second-guessing anything. It was all set in place. We're living in history, and God's plan is now unfolding, and it's still unfolding because we're still here. So we're part of that unfolding plan. I think it's a pretty exciting time to live, to be a Christian, to see everything that's going on, to know all that we know. We We have the whole Bible. We know what God is up to. So the Son here in this passage rules from His throne with royal authority, and his rule, it says there, is with uprightness. Or literally, the word is with straightness. In other words, he doesn't defect from his word. He doesn't defect from truth. There is no crookedness to be found in his kingdom. Now, every kingdom that's ever been on the earth was full of crookedness. We look at our own government, right? It's crooked all over the place, right? That's what happens. Why? There's sinful people involved in governing authorities. But God is without sin. So that means everything he does is straight. Straightforward. He shoots from the hip. And he gives it to us the way it ought to be given. A second thing is that he's not partial or prejudiced. I love that psalm. 89 verse 14 where it says righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne loving kindness and truth go before you see the everlasting rule of the son is marked by absolute justice and equity and is not that what we're looking for aren't we looking for a righteous fair just government we can only have it if the king And remember, the best government in the world is a kingship, is a theocracy. Especially when the theocracy is a, um, the king is God. And he's perfect, right? See, that's where it's all heading and culminating to. But yet that kingdom still is working now. So this everlasting rule of the sun 
is marked by justice and equities, and angels are servants under the sun's just, fair, loving rule. What a privilege they have to actually experience his pure justice and straight justice firsthand, right in his presence. In fact, if you look at verse number 9, which continues the thought, it says this about the incarnate Son, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Now, we get a glimpse here in this passage of Scripture at the perfection of the Son's obedience. Here, it describes the character and the conduct of Jesus Christ. We come to the New Testament, what does it say about Jesus? He knew no sin, right? That who always did what was pleasing in the Father's sight. So his holiness was unspotted, and his conformity to the divine will was perfect in principle, perfect in extent, perfect in duration. Now, we may begin to gain some insight concerning the Son's love of righteousness and his hatred of lawlessness. Where does that take him? Well, the whole book of Hebrews is heading there. What does it take him? The measure of his love for righteousness and his hatred for lawlessness culminates in his sacrificial death. That's where it all comes together. Why? He voluntarily submits. The king of all glory voluntarily submits to suffer all that was necessary to the vindication of divine righteousness and his display of divine mercy to the salvation of lost souls like you and I. To me, that is just a tremendous thought. That's why when you get to the New Testament, you have Peter saying this, For Christ also died for sin once for all, the just for the who? The unjust. For what reason? So he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit. And then another passage right here in Hebrews. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. When I get there, we'll look at it in more detail. But look what it says in verse number 5 through 14. About this, extending this thought, expounding this thought about Christ. It says in verse number 5 of chapter 10, Therefore, when he comes in into the world he says sacrifice and offering you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me in whole burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin you have taken no pleasure then i said behold i have come in the scroll of a book it is written of me to do your will O god after saying above after saying above sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law then he said behold i have come to do your will he takes away the first in order to establish the second by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of jesus christ once for all every priest stands ministering and offering time after time sac- and the same sacrifice which can never take away sin but he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time sat down at the right hand of god waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet verse 14 for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are 
sanctified. In other words, that his love for righteousness and his hatred for lawlessness leads him to the cross because we could never have kept the law perfectly to be made right with God and we had no righteousness on our own to offer to God, to be accepted into his presence, into his kingdom. So someone had to do it for us and had to be the perfect, sinless, righteous son of God who reigns as king, gets off his throne, disrobes himself of his glory, and comes to earth as a man to die on a cross. What an awesome message. And you're part of it. Who know Christ as your Lord and Savior. It doesn't get better than this. It doesn't get better than this. This means that the next part of verse number 9 of Hebrews chapter 1 where it says, anointed, He anointed you with the oil of gladness refers to the joy with which God has blessed him in acknowledgement of his vindication of divine justice as mentioned again in Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verse number 2 of Hebrews chapter 12. Turn quickly there. Again, we'll be looking at this passage. It says, saying this, fixing... Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, to be anointed here is synonymous with to be invested with royalty or to be made a king. In other words, the son... Jesus Christ is a king. He is saying that in this passage of Scripture. So he attains to a level that no angel has ever or will ever to. He sits on the throne. He reigns from the throne. They minister around the throne. And then I want you to notice in verse number 9 again, it says this. You have love... Righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Now, the companion's joy is great, but the son's joy is even greater. Now, the question is, who are your companions? Are are they angels or are they saints? Actually, the word companion literally in the Greek means to share with, to participate in. So whoever these companions are have to be participating in something that's being talked about in the context here. So as I thought about that, I, I began to think to myself, I don't think that it's talking about angels or saints in, at, at this point in Scripture. These companions are best viewed as other rulers. Those who participate and share in the ruling element of a kingdom like David, like Saul, like Solomon that went before him. Remember the writer of Hebrews and he's quoting from Psalms and the psalmist both are speaking of Jesus as the Messiah, as a prince. And so the response is God, even thy God, has raised Jesus to a kingdom far more abounding with enjoyment than has ever been conferred on any ruler ever or ever will be. So I believe the best interpretation there is his companions are the other rulers. That they shared in the glory of ruling and the power that comes with ruling and the ability that you have to 
order people around? And how would you uh, rule in your kingdom, righteously or unrighteously? See, so there's a share in with others who have ruled before him, but the blessing bestowed upon the kingdom in which the son rules far exceeds any kingdom of man or angel. Remember, Satan has a kingdom, right? The kingdom of demons, which he's in charge of. But Satan is only an angel, and Christ rules over him. So the conclusion is really inescapable here that the Son is preeminent over angels because they are subject to his rule of kingly authority and to his very will on what he wants them to do. And even demons are in some ways, as theologians have said, on a long leash. Now the last section of Scripture this morning has to do with, again, the supremacy of the Son to angels. And we look at verse number 10 to the end where the point is that the Son is preeminent over the angels by virtue of His unchangeable nature and His eternal power. Now we see the divinity coming through that person who reigns on the throne and so the perpetuity of the messiah's throne is actually secure by the eternity and the immutability that's the unchangeableness of the son and so in this next session we, we see six things that represent the son who sits on the throne and here's the first thing he goes back and he again reiterates for us look at verse number 10 quoting from Psalm 102, verse 25, that the Son represents the Creator of all things. In verse 10, And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. Again, Psalm 102, verse 25, Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. So Jesus was the agent in whom and through whom the entire universe of space and time was created. And Jesus, of course, created every speck of dust. And as I already said, in the 100,000 million galaxies. And he also created all the sub-microscopic systems that have no measurable size, things that are invisible to the eye that we can't even see under a microscope, things that we don't even know are there, dark matter in space that scientists are studying with great intensity today. In other words, the creation of all things is distinctly ascribed to the sun. And according to Job, Chapter 38, listen to what Job says as he's having conversations with his friends and, and uh, God's having conversations with him. Listen to what God says. He says, were you, were you, uh, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Question. Tell me if you have understanding. You set its measurements since you know or who stretched out the line on it? On what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, and many believe that the sons of God who shout for joy refers to angels. In other words, angels were worshiping spectators while Christ was creating the world. They were maybe the angelic choir while Christ was creating. 
So that's the first thing. The second thing that back in our text in verse 11 and 12 that the son represents is that he is the author of creation. That he's not only the creator, but he is the author of it. And that's why you see that theme come up in in Hebrews where he is the author of salvation. He is the author of creation. He's the author of what's going on. And so here in this passage, verse number 11, he says, They will perish, but you remain. They all will become old like a garment. And verse 12, and like a mantle, you will roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed. Let me just stop right there. Again, what do we have? In other words, all the changes in which this creation has and will pass through is authored by Jesus Christ. The present system, the present system of things will undergo a great change just like the old system underwent a great change. Say, well, what old system underwent a great change? Well, let's look at Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 5 through 7 and then verse number 10. Because remember, it's the mockers who were saying to the preachers, you know, everything's remained the same. Nothing's changed. It's all been like this ever since time started right well look at what it says in second peter chapter 3 verse number 5 it says when they maintain this for uh second peter 3 5 when they maintain this it escapes their notice that by the word of god the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and by water second peter 3 verse 6 through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. Now, we do know that the world was flooded. The whole world was flooded, right up to the highest mountain on the top of it. That's why you have seashells and fossils on the top of mountains and all those kind of things, how they get there. A bunch of people bring them up there? No, the water brought them up there, and they laid down on the ground. And so that's what you have in verse 7. By, the, by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Verse 10 of the same chapter. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. In verse 11, because we know these things, in verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, here's the question for us. What sort of people ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? For those who know this, your life better be different. Your life needs to be changed by this very truth. And of course, verse 13 of 2 Peter 3, it says, but according to his promise, we are looking for a new heaven and a new earth which righteousness dwells. In the end, when it all comes together and everything is done and the curse is done and Christ is reigning on his throne, then we will experience in its fullness Christ's righteous reign. Now back to, back to Hebrews chapter 1, and I want you to notice the passage again in verse number 11. It says, They will perish, but you remain. They will all become, this is verse 11 and 12, like a garment and like a mantle, you will roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed. Just think of it, that the world's going to just, God's going to roll it up. 
He's going to pack it away. He can do that. Why? He's the creator. When he says it's done, it's done. When he pulls the plug, it's done. Why? He's the creator. You see how exalted Christ is above any angels? Now, we don't know how it's going to be done. But what's amazing is we do know who's going to do it. We know him personally, Jesus Christ the Son. If he is your Lord and Savior, you know this, that the Son who creates the world alone destroys it. And here, the point here in this section of Scripture, amid all the changes that will take place, and he mentions it several times, I'm going to point them out, is that the Son remains unchanged. He stresses this, that he's unchangeable, he's immutable is the theological word. He who, before time and creation, will be the same after the heaven and earth perish. Now, this should be to those who know the Lord and know now why they were brought along and brought into the realm of hearing the gospel so you can be saved and become a believer and know what your stand is before God should be of great encouragement to you in the light of an ever-changing, falling-apart world that we see every single day before our eyes. And it's Hebrews that says this in Hebrews 13.8. Jesus is the same, what? Yesterday and today and forever. This is great comfort. Because that becomes the third thing that the Son represents. He represents the changeless one. Look back in verse number 12. It says this, but you are the same. There's a stress there. You may not realize this, and I hope you do, but it is very comforting to know that God who has created the heaven and the earth who has given us the word of God, who has authored salvation, is not going to change direction on us. He is not going to change his plan. He is not going to go back on his promises ever because he remains the same in those things. They are connected with his character. That's great comfort. God's consistent. In fact, the promise to the person who was made right with him. It was Paul who said it like this in Romans to those Greeks and Jews who were listening to the gospel. Listen to what he said. Don't turn there, just listen. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is what? The same Lord is is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him, and whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, what? Will be saved. See, God in his own character proclaiming that message when someone comes in repentance and faith to him, what does he say here? I will save you. This is the reason why I came. This is the reason why I planned in eternity before the world was ever created. So you can be saved. So you can be made right with me. And you know what? I'm not going to change that plan for anybody. And if anybody tries to change that plan, it will be the damnation of their souls and those who hear him. Them. That particular person. He's the same. Tomorrow when I get up, 
The world may change, my job may change, my health may change, but he'll be the same. Right? He promised us he'll give us a new body, he'll take us to heaven, we'll be with him. He can't go back on that. He can't change that. That's great comfort. That means if you are a believer, you can't lose your salvation. No one can take it from you unless God takes it himself. And he says, once I give it, I'm not taking it back. It's yours. I've I've done all this work for you to be saved, and I'm going to fiddle around with it? No way. He's not going to do that. God is not fickle like that. He is the changeless one. And then look back at verse number 11. The fourth thing he represents is that he is the eternal one. In verse 11, it says in the, uh, that part of the verse, it says, they will perish, but you remain. And then again, in verse number 12, it says at the end of verse 12, and your years will not come to an end. So the one we're talking about is that Jesus, the Son, is the eternal and independent being. He needs no one. He was in the beginning when neither man nor angel nor creature of any kind existed. When there was nothing but God in the universe. When God was all. That's where Jesus was. Meaning that he is the eternal one. That's why when Moses said, Lord, when I go to Pharaoh, who shall I tell him sent me? And Jesus said this, tell him I am sent you. I am. That's that's the phrase that God, the name that God gave himself, meaning that I am means I am. I had no beginning, no end. No one can change me. I am the God who created. I am the God who speaks to Moses. I am the God who sends his son into the world to die for sinners. He is God. He is the one that you are to call upon to have your soul cleansed and redeemed and made right with God. He is the eternal one. And then number five, verse number 13. The son represents the ruler of the universe. It says in verse 13, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? Now, a king seated on his throne issues forth his orders administers his justice, displays the splendor and majesty of his office, and to sit near the king when on the throne is the emblem of rank. It is the emblem of dignity. It's the emblem of the power in the kingdom. So a seat on the right hand or on the left of a king are just other words for the most dignified station in the kingdom. Sitting on the throne at the right hand of the king indicates that he who sits there reigns along with the king. In other words, for Jesus, the Son, to bear this designation is equivalent to saying that he is the ruler of the universe. And then in verse number 13, 
the last thing he represents, at least in this passage, is that the son represents the victor over all his enemies, where it says, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So Jesus is to occupy this dignified place until God, even his God, makes his enemies his footstool. Now, his enemies are anyone who opposes his great and just and wise rule. And that would include, of course, Satan and his demons, his legion of angels that fell from God's presence. It would include all unbelievers, all unrepentant sinners, all ungodly people, all institutions, both civil and ecclesiastical, which are inconsistent with and opposed to the reign of truth and purity and order and happiness, which it is his purpose to establish. Any one of those is his enemy. Now, I thought at first that this could be a picture of a warrior on a field of battle in which the victor puts his foot on the, the captive's neck and makes the neck his footstool. And that was a common practice back then where the, somebody who, the king who won the battle puts his foot on the neck of the, of the one he had victory over and proclaims his victory using his neck as a footstool. But there's much more in this picture here. Here's the picture of a prince who is secure on his throne in which his enemies being so far from being able even to disturb him and his kingdom, let alone to overthrow his throne. Instead, his enemies will be, the Bible says, a footstool for his feet, quoting from Psalm 110, meaning that his enemies become a people, a person, a group that is under complete subjection to the one who sits on the throne through his rule to his authority in which the king can do anything he wants with whenever he wants to do it with them. That they have no power, no authority at all whatsoever. It just shows the security and stability of the kingdom of God in which he will put all his enemies, not just some, every single one of them will be put under his feet and it, it intimates that the power by which the enemies of Messiah are completely put down is the very power of God. And I believe that's why Paul brings up in Corinthians a very difficult passage of Scripture, but he kind of brings the whole thing together as far as this issue is concerned, where he says in 1 Corinthians 15, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is expected who put all things in subjected to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subject to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. In other words, when Christ subdues 
when God the Father subdues all of Christ's enemies and the, all the thing is done, then Christ offers it all back to the Father. And then it's all in all. God's all in all. It's all done. It's all over. There's no more enemies. So you see how superior and preeminent Jesus is to angels. Angels are not governing spirits. They are ministering spirits. Just as verse 14, the last verse says, and this is an interesting passage where it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? That angels are his servants, and even more than that, they are servants of those for whom he lived and died and suffered and reigns to save and bless. That angels are sent forth by the Son to minister to the saved until they obtain their full possession of their inheritance. So whatever the angels are doing behind the scenes, they're doing for those who inherit salvation. And they're making sure that you and I get that inheritance in its fullness. So however, not that people say we all have a guardian angel. That's not where I'm going with this. But what I'm saying is what the Bible is saying, that God, under his orders, sends his angels out for those who got saved. And who knows also if the angels protect us until that time the gospel can be heard by us so we can hear it and be saved, right? I think of my own life. I, I should have been dead a few times. But I knew that when I heard the gospel and became a Christian that God was involved a long time before that all happened. That he brought me to that point. And he protected me and uh, gave me the gospel. And I believed and repented. And yeah, well, here I am, right? And here you are. It's kind of comforting to know that this is in the Bible. But we can't see them. They're invisible. I don't know what they're up to. But I do know they're up to this, right? So when we go out and proclaim the gospel, we, we could depend on this too. This is part of it. Now, I ran across a story I just wanted to share with you. Uh, a man named Jim Marstaller recounts the following story told to him by his uncle Clyde, Clyde Taylor, who founded the National Association of Evangelicals. And Dr. Clyde Taylor, who married, it says, my grandfather's sister, guy writing it, and my uncle Charlie Marstaller were missionaries in the early 1920s to a headhunting tribe in South Africa. They were beside the river in a forest living in a thatched hut. One day, late in the afternoon, they noticed a dugout being paddled down the river with only one man in it. They immediately thought it was the warriors, that the warriors were coming to kill them that night because a dugout can hold up to 40 men. And so they realized that that night they could be killed. Uncle Clyde and Charlie had a twenty-two rifle in their hut and took it and some ammo out into the tall grass off the side of their dwelling. 
There they stayed all night in their own private prayer meeting, expecting that if they were attacked, they would shoot the gun into the air to frighten the headhunters away. Well, to their surprise, nothing happened that night. They had no trouble at all from the tribe. In fact, they did their, finished their term and left South Africa. They both returned nine years later. One day, they encountered one of the men of the tribe who came to kill him that night. He had become a Christian. So he asked the native about what happened that night. Why didn't you kill us? And this is what he said. The former headhunter said, I remember that night there were 44 of us and we were going to come and set your hut on fire. And when we got there and surrounded your hut, we realized we couldn't, we could not attack you because there were hundreds of men dressed in white with swords and shields standing around your hut and even on the roof. And that's why we couldn't attack you. And that's why I'm a Christian now. Because I realize that your God is greater than anything I ever known. Uncle Clyde realized then that God had protected them with his angels and used this account to be an encouragement to many others throughout the rest of his life. That's just one of the examples. You, you hear these stories all over the place. I try to pick one that I never heard before. But that's encouraging. See, God's for us. You realize that? God is for us, so let's go out into the world. Let's go out into Satan's territory and take souls for Christ. Why? We have the advantage. He doesn't. Even though he wants to discourage you, he wants to cause disillusionment and doubt and whatever he can in the deadly deeds in your life to keep you from doing what God wants you to do, we have the advantage that Jesus Christ who is the creator, the author, the changeless one, the eternal one, the ruler, and the victor over all enemies, has given to us angels to be servants to those who will inherit salvation. And that's encouraging. Is it not? So see, don't drift from this truth in Scripture concerning who Jesus Christ is. Because Satan's greatest attacks against believers is to doubt the person and the work of christ and if he can get you to doubt that then he's got you in almost every area amen let's stay strong man let's stay strong and let's live for christ with all that we have because of who our lord and savior is now in concluding if these wavering persecuted Jewish Christians were being tempted to say that Christ is an angel to escape persecution or to neglect or ignore or fudge about who Jesus really is. They incur the wrath of God. Because the truth of God's word makes it clear that the son, Jesus Christ, has a supremacy over angels and over all of them he is exalted and they are inferior. He is the son of God in his person, his work, his position, and his authority. And nothing can change that. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you this morning for the word of God. I pray, as I do often, Lord, for those who have not come to know you as their Lord and Savior, I pray they would come and call upon you, knowing that you are a God who bends your ear down to listen to those who repent and call upon you in faith. Thank you, Father, that you draw sinners to yourself. And thank you, Lord, for all the things you've done way before we came to hear the gospel in our life, to make us ready, to draw us, to bring us to that place that we see ourselves as a sinner and we see the only way to be rescued from the condemnation and damnation of sin is in the person of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that we would continue to live with that truth and be firm in that truth and not fudge on that truth, not ignore that truth or lay that truth aside, but we would ever be challenged in our heart and mind to be thinking about your supremacy. So I pray, Lord, this morning that we as believers would would give ourselves wholeheartedly to your work. In whatever occupation you call us, it's all your work. Please use us there to be a light and a testimony in a dark world to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, continue to grow us strong in the faith that we don't waver, we don't fudge, we don't ignore any of the things that you have for us in the word of God. And Lord, this morning we want to give you praise and honor for your preeminence. We bow as your servants along with the angels before your majesty. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.